0: Cage 3650 lecture Tuesday, September 15th, oxidative phosphorylation and fuel utilization. Okay, so let's pick up with uh, oxygen consumption. Last time we talked a good bit about uh, 3.5 mLs per kg per minute. Ballpark, so did that work out okay? All right, good. So, it, you know, our, our true resting oxygen consumption on average is about 3.5 mLs milliliters of oxygen for every kilogram of body weight every minute. 3.5 mLs per kg per minute. So here's rest. Now we're going to ask this person to start exercising. And in this case, this is a cycle ergometer where they're going to be riding at 150 watts. Uh, The subject that we use for this, uh, these are real numbers from somebody that we did this type of uh, test in the lab. This particular cyclist that we used, 150 watts, is pretty much a warm-up for this person. It's not a very hard exercise intensity. And so we saw that exercise uh, as exercise intensity started, oxygen consumption slowly starts to, well, actually pretty quickly starts to ramp up. But it takes, in this case, one, two, three minutes to get to the steady state. Okay. Um, in submaximal. Okay, submaximal exercise intensities. In most cases, if the person continues to run or cycle or exercise at that steady state, you will reach a steady state in oxygen consumption, right, where oxidative phosphorylation is providing enough ATP energy to support that level of exercise intensity. Okay? So you it's you'll reach a steady state in this case, it took about three minutes to reach that steady state. Uh, we could have continued this out for, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes, and it would be right along this line here. But then we chose, for time's sake, to cut off the exercise after 10 minutes and stop. And this oxygen consumption then starts to fall. Falls fairly quickly at first, and then more slowly. And it takes three or four minutes to uh, uh, get back to the level that it was at rest. Okay? Okay. And at least I know in the morning lab, I heard Ryan talking about the whole oxygen debt deficit epoch thing, right? So we'll kind of go back over that. And and we we introduced this idea last time. Uh, We know at this time point, the person is walking on the treadmill at a certain speed and grade, or they're cycling at a certain intensity. And so immediately from this time point, this exercise requires this amount of energy expenditure right here. But oxygen consumption hasn't caught up yet. Okay, so what we have done is created what's often referred to as an oxygen deficit. Okay, an oxygen deficit. We're not consuming oxygen yet fast enough to supply the ATP energy that's needed for that level of exercise. Right? That's not necessarily a problem because we can get that ATP energy from someplace else. Right. Where do, during during this. Section right here, where do this much we're getting? Say at the say at minute one, we're we're getting this much energy from aerobic metabolism, but where's this coming from? Anaerobic, Anaerobic. some from glycolysis probably, and some from creatine phosphate. Okay, now we have created this oxygen deficit. We have borrowed ATP energy, some from glycolysis probably, and some from creatine phosphate. Now, a deficit's not really a problem. Okay? Ah. And, and I'll give the example. When I was a, when I was a uh, graduate student and, uh, you know, paying my own way through grad school, and, and uh, I, I had gotten interested in doing triathlons. So I made the mistake of going to the uh, the bike store, and there it was, the perfect triathlon bike. Uh, price tag, but but price tag wasn't a problem. I got to pull out my wallet. You know the bike's X amount. I opened my wallet. I got like four bucks in there, but it wasn't a problem because I also had. Yeah. So I pulled out one of these babies, and of course, in those days, it was the cha-chunk, You know, it wasn't the little swipe thing. Uh, cha-chunk, sign that. Ah, and and I, I'll give the example when I was a when I was a uh, graduate student and uh, you know paying my own way through grad school, and and uh, I, I had gotten interested in doing triathlons. So I made the mistake of going to the uh, the bike store and. There it was. The perfect triathlon bike. Uh, price tag, but but price tag wasn't a problem. I got to pull out my wallet, you know, the bike's X amount. I opened my wallet, I got like four bucks in there. But it wasn't a problem because I also had... Yeah, so I pulled out one of these babies and of course in those days it was the cha you know, it wasn't a little swipe thing. Uh, Cha-chunk, Signed that thing, rode the bike home. True story. I was the happiest guy in Atlanta for 28 days. Because what happened in 28 days? The bill came. came. What I had done was created a deficit, which wasn't a problem for a certain period of time. But once the bill comes, what happened? It is now a debt that has to be repaid. Okay. Which is why at this point... When we stop exercising, immediately our energy demand falls back down to resting. Because what was the person doing on the treadmill at this point? You stopped the treadmill and you should have done what? Down. Sat down. down. So their energy expenditure requirement should have been the same as at rest. But oxygen consumption stays elevated for some period of time. And the idea with this is that we're paying back... By keeping oxygen consumption elevated, we're paying back what we borrowed over here from the anaerobic energy systems, all right? If we have burned some creatine phosphate, that creatine phosphate donates its energy and phosphate to ADP to reform ATP, and we're left with what? Creatine phosphate goes to? I know it was the last quiz, but <laughs> it's going to come up again sometime. Creatine phosphate goes to creatine. And then how did we get creatine back to creatine phosphate? It goes where? The, the creatine shuttle. That creatine goes down to where? A m- m- mitochondria. And gets its phosphate and energy from an ATP produced in the mitochondria mitochondria through what energy system? Aerobic Aerobic oxidative phosphorylation. Okay? If we use glycolysis, we take glucose and we run it down to pyruvate. And pyruvate goes where? Lactate. Lactate. What happens to the lactate molecule? We can circulate it And then tissues can push it back to pyruvate and do what with it? it. You can form glucose or you can metabolize it where? Where's the Krebs cycle in the cell? In the mitochondria through what energy system? Our aerobic energy system. Okay, so that's what this is doing. When you're sitting in the chair after you finished exercise, but your oxygen consumption is still elevated, part of this is going towards paying back the creatine phosphate that w- energy that was borrowed and the anaerobic glycolysis energy that was borrowed. Okay. Now, kind of the older concept was they just called this the oxygen debt, deficit debt. And these two curves, that this area under this curve right here
1: was matched
0: by this area over here. You, you borrowed X energy and you paid back X energy. But in my little example of my bicycle, did I pay back exactly the same amount of money that I charged on that credit card? No, and in fact, because I was a poor graduate student and I paid it off five bucks at a time, it's probably the most expensive bicycle in history. <laughs> and in fact, I still have that bike. <laughs> it's, it's so expensive. Um, what, what, what do you have to pay back besides just the, the exact amount of money that you borrowed? Interest, interest. okay? And I, I, at least I heard Ryan talking about this interest. What's some of the physiological interest you might be paying back over here? What's the body doing while you're sitting there? You're at rest. You're sitting there. You're still using energy above resting to do what? What things are you taking care of? Yeah, you're trying to get back to homeostasis. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of things are you using energy for to get back to homeostasis? Are you still breathing somewhat heavily? Okay, does that require energy? Muscle force? Sure. Is your heart still elevated above rest, heart rate above resting? Okay, hearts and muscle. does that require energy? Yeah. Yes. Sure. How about temperature? Yeah. Has your temperature gone up with exercise? And then the processes we have to do to get our, our, our temperature back down to normal, does that require some energy? Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay, so all those things are physiological interest, if you will, to pay back the energy we borrowed over here. Now, the borrowing here is pretty small if the exercise intensity is low. But what happens if the exercise intensity is high? Let's double it. Go to 300 watts. A okay. couple of things. One is, uh, well, several items of note here. As exercise intensity goes up, uh, he still, well, actually we couldn't really tell if he got to a steady state here because it was still going up when he got to five minutes. So we don't really know for sure. We'd have to keep it going longer than five minutes to, to find out. Uh, we can see the total oxygen consumption is much higher. Higher exercise intensity requires a higher level of oxygen consumption. Uh, what else can we see about this curve compared to this one? Yeah, it got to a much higher level, and to get to that level took a longer period of time. We're, we're at five minutes, and we're still not sure if he's at a steady state or not. Okay. So, um, then, uh, interestingly, he this this athlete that we tested is fairly well-trained and a fairly well-trained cyclist. His oxygen consumption, when we had him rest, falls pretty quickly and actually gets almost back down to resting within that same five minutes, okay? But his oxygen consumption had to stay elevated over this one during that same time frame because... If you buy a more expensive bike, the credit card bill is bigger, and you're going to have to make larger minimum payments, okay to, to get it paid off. All right? Does that make sense? All right. Um, and so here this, this is just from your book, just showing where how the, you know, that portion of the curve, which we refer to as the deficit. and then this portion of the curve, which is often referred to as the debt, And then I know, uh, again, it was probably at least mentioned in lab, this acronym EPOC or EPOC um, stands for, where is it? Here we go. Excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. Your oxygen consumption stays elevated after exercise. We're, We're paying back what we borrowed from using creatine. We are paying back what we borrowed from glycolysis by, by oxidizing lactate. Um, we're trying to get our body temperature back down. Uh, our ventilation and our heart rate, cardiac output is still elevated, so that's some cost to us. Uh, exercises a stress, which results in the release of some stress hormones that have to be metabolized. Um, there is some... We don't really store oxygen in the body, but because at rest we utilize so little of the oxygen that is attached to hemoglobin, and when you exercise you re- you use more of that oxygen, and so after exercise we replace some of that oxygen that's that's bound to hemoglobin even on the venous side. So it's uh, and that happens a little bit too in muscle to the in the myoglobin that's uh, uh, in the muscle. Okay. Um, this is basically showing what would happen if you took somebody who was well trained versus somebody who was not very well trained and had them do you know, the same type of task starting exercise and then reaching a steady state the person who's more well trained would get to that steady state VO2 faster okay? if it's aerobic exercise and this person is more highly aerobically trained they would get to that steady state faster Okay. Why is that? There, it's both requiring. you got two people uh, uh, otherwise I, identical one, but one of them is more well trained aerobically, the other one is less trained aerobically. The exercise task requires the same degree of exercise intensity and the same degree of oxygen consumption. Why does the well trained person get to that steady state faster? What are what are some of the and we, we haven't talked about a lot many of these yet, but what are some of the adaptations that might occur that would allow you to consume oxygen more quickly and efficiently? <laughs> what? Don't don't be afraid. Say say it. What breathing the way you're breathing? Uh it could be the way you're breathing. We'll, we'll actually find out when we get to the pulmonary side that's probably not the case unless a person has some pulmonary disease or dysfunction. But then what else is there in the chain of events? Do people that are more aerobically trained have a bigger blood volume? Yeah. Can they carry more oxygen? Yes. Okay. Does uh, their their heart become more effective in terms of being able to pump more blood with each beat? <laughs> Do you increase the capillary network in the muscles that have been exercised and trained? Yeah. Do you increase the amount of myoglobin in the muscles that help transfer the oxygen? Do your mitochondria get bigger and more numerous? All those things. Okay. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. So all of those things occur. So that allows this person to more rapidly and effectively get to that, level, that needed level of oxygen consumption. Okay? Not only will they have a higher VO2 max, they're more effective at getting to that submaximal level more quickly and efficiently. Okay, and this is the, sa- this is the same depiction. Faster rise, okay? the tr- more well-trained person gets to that steady state faster. And this is, this is the book's version of this. So I like my version better. Okay. Uh, two, two other concepts related to steady state oxygen consumption. Um, for the most part, when you ask people to do the same exercise task, they will have about the, the same exercise intensity. They will have about the same response. But there are some differences in what's called running economy or running uh, efficiency. Uh, this applies to walking as well. It can apply to other locomotor activities also. Um, basically what happens is, in this case what you do is you you look at uh, two runners uh, running and in fact probably the best way to look at it is you take two runners, you put them on the treadmill and you have them run at a fixed speed and you measure their oxygen consumption. And so what happens in the case here is one runner at the exact same speed running as another runner consumes a little less oxygen. Uh, somebody else may consume a little more oxygen, even though they're running at exactly the same running speed. Okay. And there's a variety of different reasons for it. it. Probably the major reason has to do with uh, biomechanical uh, uh, efficiency. Okay. Some some people have uh, you know. Uh, a difference in their stride, their leg swing, their arm motion, um, things that require them to expend a little extra energy than somebody else. And in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not that big of a deal, but with competitive athletes, one of the things to do is to look at, particularly their running economy, at race paces. Because if somebody is making some kind of extraneous movements and consuming more oxygen than they should be. They're not as effective because for any given level of activity, they're using more of their uh, oxygen consumption ability than necessary. Okay? Um, Now, we talked about incomplete recovery intervals. Okay? And what did we use those for? Lactate threshold. Okay? Okay. So we had people run intervals that resulted in their lactate levels getting bumped up higher and higher and higher and the way we do that is by restricting the amount of recovery. That's more of a metabolic adaptation. One of the strategies that people will use in certain sports like cycling or running is to do more complete recovery intervals. Say you've got a runner who at their 10k race pace is consuming this much oxygen, which is this much more than most runners at that pace. Now, you know you can't have them run that pace for long periods of time, so you break it up into intervals. And what you do is you have them run at that race pace, or even a little faster than that race pace, for a certain interval. Could be uh, 400 meters, could be, you know, uh, uh, 800 meters, half mile, um, whatever. And then, when they finish that interval, you have them rest to where they're completely recovered before they do that next interval. The idea is that you're now focusing on form, all right, and and running economy instead of the metabolic adaptation. You're trying to get them to be more efficient or effective at a certain running pace. Okay? Does that make sense? Uh, Probably a better example is swimming. Do we have any swimmers in here? No? Um because of the extra resistance it's afforded by the water, uh swimmers can often dramatically increase their time or increase their speed swimming simply by improving their their swimming form okay uh, Another good example is with um cyclists if you're doing time trialing where you don't have anybody in front of you to to uh, shield you from the wind resistance, simple changes in their form, they can become more effective, they can go faster for the same amount of power output by wearing aerodynamic helmets, using aerodynamic bars, and uh, uh, slight changes in form make them more economical. Okay? For the same amount of effort, they can go faster. Okay? So that's what this issue is about. Uh, lastly... When you exercise at steady state, if you keep running, as an example, at that same intensity, you expect your oxygen consumption to stay the same for however long you're going at exactly that same pace. And that will hold true except for uh, a couple of situations. One is with more prolonged exercise, and this would be more like running a half marathon, running a marathon, particularly if it is hot and humid. Even if you're running exactly the same pace, what happens is your oxygen consumption starts to creep upwards, okay? And the the simple example or simple reason there is thermoregulation. We have to start expending more of our energy to try to get rid of heat and not just related to the exercise intensity itself, so our total energy expenditure starts to go up some, there, there is a zone somewhere between, uh, somewhere in that sub-maximum exercise intensity. You're not at VO2 max, but you're somewhere above. There's, there's a, there's a last point at which somebody can maintain steady-state oxygen consumption. So it's somewhere between those two. And what happens is, if you try to exercise at that intensity, you don't reach a steady state. Uh, This this should actually probably be more in the range of uh, a few minutes rather than 40 or 60 minutes. But what happens is, uh, and and a good example would be probably uh, races in the range of maybe 1,500 meters to 3,000 meters steeplechase or even 5,000 meters, which is 3.1 miles where you're not running at your VO2 max, but you're running at an intensity that your oxygen consumption keeps going up and keeps going up and keeps going up. And if you don't get to the finish line fairly quickly, you're going to reach your VO2 max and fatigue and have to slow down. Okay. So there's some point of exercise intensity that even though we're running at a steady pace, our exercise intensity keeps or our oxygen consumption keeps drifting upwards. Okay. We, we can't attain a steady state VO2 because the intensity is too high. Okay? So two conditions with submax exercise intensity that we may not see that steady state. Okay. Uh, this is the version from your book about different fuel sources. This is the version I'm going to use. All right, let me let me ask before we move on. So let, let's let's look at lab. The lab you did last week. Did it work out like this fairly well? Did it work out like that fairly well? Did you? It, it came out exactly like that. Did you get a good steady state? And then and then the drop. What's that? Not on which one? Oh, okay. So it, so it kept going. It, it was more like. Did it go more like this one? It kept going up, and then when they stopped, it came down. Yeah. So for that person, they may have been at an exercise intensity where they either weren't going to get to a plateau, or it was going to take them six, seven, eight minutes to get there. Okay. So, um, and that that could be dependent upon the the relative um, training status of that individual. You know. So we just sort of blindly picked that speed. So. Okay, so anybody, any questions about your, about this related to lab that's for this week? Okay. So if it's plateau, does that mean they're trained? Like, so that top person, are they chained or not? Like, the, this guy, well, this was the same person, okay? okay? So this was the same person, but the blue line he was riding at 150 watts, so it was really easy for him to get to a, a plateau pretty quickly. But then when we doubled it to 300 watts, this guy, if we you can start to see he's leveling off here. If we'd kept him going to 6 or 7 or 8 minutes, uh, he would have hit a plateau because this guy was pretty well trained. 300 watts is a, is, a, is a pretty good power output, although he would have gotten to a, um, a steady state if we'd have kept going. Okay. But if you took somebody who was not a trained cyclist and you did 150 watts, they probably would have gotten to a steady state. But if they'd have done 300 watts, they probably would have kept going up and up and up and up and up, and not in fatigue before they reached any kind of steady state, because it would probably require uh, close or or potentially more than their VO2 max. Well, do you- well, for the purpose of the lab, we wanted it to level off to show the the plateau, you know, and, and the, the true steady state. But in terms of sports and a- and athletics. It depends, because the whole point, say for a race, is to get from point A to point B as fast as possible, and um, you 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 can you can see inappropriate strategies, particularly in kids. You know, I've taken my kids to little fun runs, and uh, the gun goes off, and they just take off running. You know, it's all you know, it's only a uh, it's like a mile fun run. They take off running like crazy down the street. And within 75 yards, they're all walking. Okay, whereas even kids that are six, seven, eight, you know, nine years old easily have the capacity to run a mile. But what do they have to do? They got to pace themselves. Okay, and and so the and this is how athletes you know learn how to do this by um, practice and trial and error. Um, the The idea is you want to maintain your fastest pace that you can for that particular distance. And if you look at races like a marathon, uh, they the runners are clearly within a steady state because the race is so long that they have to be uh, at a submaximal pace, they have to be you know well enough below their maximum that they're going to be largely at a steady state. Okay, Now, that's not exactly true for competitive marathoning because um, Kind of your average marathoner, they're just going to get out there and try to run a steady pace all the way to the finish. Competitive athletes aren't going to do that because in the middle of the race somewhere, somebody's going to surge ahead, or there's a hill and somebody's going to push you up the hill, and your oxygen consumption is going to go up. But at some point, you got to slow down to to catch up and recover. Okay, so there's different tactics in in the competitive nature, but. Um, you know, so take a 3,000 meter, or 5,000 meters, a 3.1 mile race. Uh, gun goes off, people start running, and if you run too fast, your oxygen consumption keeps going up and up and up and up and up, and eventually you get to the point where you, 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 your intensity is too high for your ability to supply come totally by oxidative phosphorylation, and so you have to slow down, you start to fatigue. So, you know, the idea is to try to maintain the highest level of oxygen consumption that you can until you get to the finish line. So, so in a 5K, you're not going to see a plateau because their oxygen consumption is going to keep going up and keep going up and keep going up because the race is fairly short. You know, a good runner is going to finish in, you know, 15 minutes or so. All right. So, does that make sense? Okay. Anything else related to steady state VO2 lab? Am I good with that? Okay. So far, what we have focused on almost solely is carbohydrates. Okay, with oxidative phosphorylation, we can use other fuels. We have focused so far just on carbohydrate oxidation. Either glucose or stored glycogen, going down through glycolysis to pyruvate, going into the mitochondria through the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain. Okay. Um, well, I'll get back to that. We we can metabolize some other things for energy, but the two other major nutrients that we metabolize for energy are fats and proteins or amino acids, okay? Uh, when, you, when you read the claims that if you drink this uh, you know, vitamin water, it will give you energy, it is not true because we do not metabolize vitamins. Uh, when you take uh, uh, mineral supplements to give you energy, it is not true because we do not metabolize minerals for energy. We metabolize carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Okay? And here's how we do it. All right, we already know how we do glucose and glycogen, or carbohydrates. Uh, fats, fat metabolism is, is very complex, and we're going to boil it down to just the, the basic, simple components. Uh, we'll get to structures and uh, to fats in a little bit. But essentially fats are long chains of carbons. The fats that are used by the body are referred to as fatty acids and they are typically either 16 carbons or 18 carbons. They're long chains of carbons. One example of one of these types of fatty acids that we use is is called palmitate or, or palmitic acid. It has 16 carbons. I know you can't read that, but hopefully you can on your handout. It has 16 carbons. How, how many carbons was acetyl-CoA? Six. Three. Nope. Four. Nope. Four. <coughs> Four. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. Okay. How many carbons is glucose? Six. Six. Gets down to here, splits in half, and we have two, three carbon compounds. So pyruvate has three. We take pyruvate to acetyl-CoA and we lose a carbon. So acetyl-CoA has two. two. Okay. So, if we have palmitate, which has 16 carbons, essentially what we can do is bring it into the mitochondria and through a process that's called beta oxidation, it's a series of chemical steps, we can lop off two carbons at a time and make them into acetyl-CoA. Okay? We that's we take 16 carbons lop them off two at a time, turn those two carbons uh, into acetyl-CoA and they can go through the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain. Okay? So that's how we use fatty acids in the body. It's it's a little more complex and we'll we'll cover it in more detail in a bit. If we start with one glucose molecule, and we take it down to pyruvate, we get two pyruvates, we take both of those through the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain with one molecule of glucose, how many ATP's did we get? If we oxidize it completely? 36. Right, well 32, or your book says 32, I'm telling you 36. So, okay? <laughs> No, seriously. I'm <laughs> What's the right answer for the test? <laughs> I will make it very clear. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you take one one molecule of this fatty acid, palmitate, and you completely aerobically metabolize it. You send every two-carbon fragment through the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain, one molecule of palmitate, you can get 129 ATPs. Okay? So, fats make an incredibly energy-dense fuel. Okay. It's one of the reasons the body likes to eat fat. It's one of the reasons the body likes to store fat. Right, because it's very energy dense. Okay, and in, and in fact, for every um, well, I'll get back to that. Okay. How many ATPs? One hundred twenty-nine. Okay, one hundred twenty-nine. Right. So if you metabolize one molecule of, of palmitate, you can get a hundred and twenty-nine ATPs. You, you know, and and. We'll talk in a minute about how we, we store and utilize this fat. If you if you metabolize one molecule of glucose, you get 36. So if you were a smart muscle cell, which would you rather do? You get a lot more you get a lot more ATP energy from metabolizing fat. As we'll see in a minute, that's typically what we do at rest. We we rely more heavily on fat metabolism at rest because it's very energy-efficient, if you will, because by metabolizing fat molecules, we get lots of ATP energy. The difficulty comes when you start to, when the need arises to do it rapidly, and that's, that's when we start to have difficulties, and we'll, we'll get to all that. This is kind of a preview, all right? So this is aerobic metabolism of carbohydrates, aerobic metabolism of fats, Then over here, uh, with our proteins, we know that the building blocks of proteins are amino acids. Um, Protein metabolism is a lot more complex because most of these amino acids are metabolized slightly differently. And what I've done up here is given you an example of two different amino acids. Uh, Alanine, right here. Uh, by its chemical structure, when it's broken down, it, it has uh, um, three carbons, so it can be turned into pyruvate. And so uh, alanine can go to pyruvate. That pyruvate can then be metabolized, and we can get 13 ATPs from that one. Okay. Um, there's another amino acid called isoleucine, which when you break it down, we do similar to what we do over here, which is you take two carbons at a time and you turn it into acetyl-CoA and in this case there's enough carbons here that you can get 36 ATPs. Okay, And I'll show you a a graphic in a little bit that shows these are just two of the amino acids Amino acids can get plugged into this Krebs cycle in a variety of different places, which is one of the things that makes uh, protein metabolism uh, a little more complex. Okay? So, we've got creatine phosphate, right? We've got creatine phosphate, which is stored right in the muscle, one-step chemical reaction to replace ATP. We have glucose... We have glucose and glycogen, carbohydrates, that can either be metabolized anaerobically and go to pyruvate, to lactate, or they can be metabolized aerobically. Okay, Glucose and glycogen can be metabolized aerobically. The other two nutrients that we can metabolize aerobically, that we can oxidize, are fats, Which go through this process of beta oxidation, and they feed into the system at acetyl CoA. And then we've got these proteins or amino acids that can fit into the Krebs cycle in a variety of different places. Okay? All right, let's. All right, we're going to go to fuel. Let me just... Yeah, I'll, I'll do it this way. All right. Okay. So, we have a choice of fuels. We've got... Um, In oxidative phosphorylation, we've got carbohydrates, we've got fats, and we've got proteins, or amino acids. We're going to use our oxidative phosphorylation to produce ATP. And again, this is just the book scheme, shows the same thing. Fatty acids going in as acetyl-CoA, proteins, amino acids going in a couple different places. Glycogen or glucose up here. Alright, here's an electron micrograph of skeletal muscle or striated muscle. Uh, I, I like this uh, uh, picture because it, it clearly shows the reason it's called striated muscle. In in the middle here, we've got the thick, the dark bands right here, which are the thick contractile proteins, which are what, what uh, filaments? Myosin. Myosin. You've got the light colored thin filaments that are actually overlapping these thick ones so this is what actin these are the actin filaments are anchored in these sort of connective tissue bands called the Z bands which keep everything all you know aligned in a nice neat row and when we get to uh, the neuromuscular system, we'll talk in more detail, which, you sh- which should be a review for everybody, the whole sliding filament theory or process where the actins slide over the myosins and, and this muscle produces force. Uh, the reason I like to show this micrograph is that, um, so here, here's where the force or the power is produced in muscle, where force production occurs. Right here where actin and myosin overlap. These organelles right here are mitochondria. Okay? So you can see that they are embedded right in the muscle tissue, right, you know, down in the area right adjacent to where the, for- the the force is being produced and the energy is needed. All of these little dark specks, all of this stuff right here, that's all glycogen. Those are little glycogen granules. Okay, so we've got. Um, some of the fuel source that we're going to use to produce force in this muscle um, stored right here in the muscle. And these things right here are lipid droplets. They're basically intramuscular triglycerides or fat that is stored right in the muscle. Okay, So this is likely a slow-twitch muscle fiber because it has several large mitochondria and it's got lots of glycogen and it's got lots of intramuscular triglycerides as fuel sources to use for aerobic metabolism okay so we've got we've got the fuel source glycogen triglycerides or those fatty acids and we've got the energy, the aerobic energy power plants right there, the mitochondria, right adjacent to where the force is being produced and the energy is needed in the muscle. <clears throat> All right, well, let's expand on our scheme with carbohydrates a little bit. You eat carbohydrates, um, we digest and absorb uh, from the intestine or the, the stomach and the small intestine. Pretty much no matter what form of carbohydrate you consume, by the time it gets to and is processed by the liver, it's all turned, most of it's turned into glucose, okay? Now, some of that glucose gets stored in the liver as glycogen. Some of that glucose passes through the liver on into the body's circulation and, uh, and is circulated through the body as blood glucose, As this glucose is circulated around the body, various tissues in the body take that glucose out and they can either metabolize it right away if they need to, or if you're in a resting situation, you can store it as glycogen. Okay? Um, You've got between these three main sources, muscle glycogen, which is by far your largest storage of carbohydrate in the body liver glycogen which is the second largest storage of carbohydrate in the body and glucose that's circulating around in the blood and in other tissues you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,000 calories right? about 2,000 kcals or kilocalories of energy as carbohydrate in the body okay so When you eat, we take up glucose, we store some of it as glycogen, blood glucose goes up, circulates around the body, tissues take glucose out and store it, and uh, the longer this happens, blood glucose slowly starts to fall back down to normal range. Okay, that's after you eat. Now, what's going to happen, let's say that was dinner, and so you go to bed, you sleep, you know, for you know, six, seven, eight, nine hours. You get up the next morning. You've you've overslept, so now you're running to the class. You haven't eaten breakfast, so you're sitting through class, and now it's nine, ten, eleven, twelve hours since your last meal. What's what's going on here? Yeah, your your brain, as an example, exists almost solely on glucose for energy. Okay, and so if you're brain is using up glucose and it starts taking glucose out of the bloodstream and you haven't eaten anything to replace that glucose what starts happening to blood glucose it starts going down so how do we keep blood glucose up during the periods of time when we don't eat you take it from storage, you take it from storage. exactly you take and the primary source of storage for blood glucose is uh, glycogen that's in your liver so what you'll start to do is you'll start to break down glycogen in your liver, ship it out into the blood to keep blood glucose up. Okay? But how long does that last? Can you go... How long does that last? If, you're not, if you haven't eaten, your blood glucose starts falling, but your liver can keep it up there for a while. How long before you start to see blood glucose start really getting low? Yeah, it's probably in the neighborhood... Well, let me put it this way. If you don't eat for about 18 hours or so, your liver is pretty much down to almost zero in terms of glycogen. Now, your liver can produce glucose, but it doesn't produce it real fast. It can, it can, it can take other things and produce some glucose, but it doesn't produce it fast enough to help you from getting headaches and getting... What, what is it called when your blood glucose gets too low? hypoglycemia, and what are some of the symptoms of having blood glucose beat? You get shaky. How well can you concentrate, concentrate, attend to things? Not very very well, because the brain depends on glucose. glucose, Okay? Alright, so exercise is very similar to fasting in terms of metabolism. Uh, but it's, it's more potent because what we do when we now we get this muscle to start exercising over here is that we will start using muscle glycogen and break down muscle glycogen. And, partic- and we, uh, exercise also stimulates the uptake of glucose. So we start taking up glucose out of the blood. And the more we exercise and the more we take glucose out of the blood, what happens to blood glucose concentration? It starts going down if blood glucose goes down what happens over here in order to keep blood if we don't consume anything while we're exercising blood uh, liver glycogen is going to start to go down to keep blood glucose up and after some period of time we significantly reduce this okay so eating carbohydrate and storing it and then breaking it down and using it again when we're either not eating or we're exercising does so that make sense? Everybody okay on the sort of overall scheme there with carbohydrates? Okay, with fat. <clears throat> um, digestion and absorption starts out the same way. Obviously, if we eat foods that, that, have a, uh, that, that are high in fat... You know, we start to break them up in the stomach and it goes into the small intestine. Instead of absorbing fats directly into the bloodstream, they're actually absorbed into your lymphatic system. They're carried up uh, essentially in, uh, uh, and dumped into the um, bloodstream in, the, the, uh, in a thoracic duct in a, in a vein in your neck. Okay? So we absorb these fatty acids through the lymph. They are then carried through the blood as what are called fatty acids. You'll see the acronym or abbreviation FFA, which stands for free fatty acids. That's a little bit of a misnomer because these fatty acids are actually carried through the bloodstream bound to a plasma protein. And that'll become important in a, in a little bit. So we call them free fatty acids, but they're not really floating around free. They're, they're floating around bound to a, a plasma protein. Okay, yeah, you, uh, you go to, uh, um, you know, you have, you have the double whopper, the, the, the fries. Um, you know, you eat a, eat a good, uh, you know, 2,000 calories that's, that's predominantly fat. So these fatty acids are absorbed. They're floating around the bloodstream. And most of them are going to be taken up by... by Adipocytes or fat cells, okay? And these free fatty acids are combined into what's called a triglyceride. A triglyceride is just three fatty acids that, ha- that are connected with a glycerol molecule. okay? Triglyceride. okay? So three fatty acids attached to this glycerol molecule, it's just the, the most predominant storage form of fat, okay? So we're going to take these fatty acids. Most of them are going to go to fat cells where they're going to be stored. As we saw in the micrograph, some of them are going to be taken up by muscle and actually stored in muscle. Um, Then, when we want to utilize fat for energy, we will break down these triglycerides back to the fatty acids, dump them into the blood, and then we're going to take those fatty acids into tissues and... Remember, we took them into the mitochondria, we started lopping off two carbons at a time, and we're going to metabolize them aerobically, okay? Now, this is only a tiny portion of fat metabolism, the energy part. There's all, there's all kinds of different uh, types and forms from chylomicrons to very low-density lipoproteins to low-density lipoproteins to high-density lipoproteins. There's all kinds of different forms that, that fat is carried through the body We're just going to focus on fatty acids and triglycerides, okay? We'll spend a little more time on that uh, down the road some. Okay, proteins. Once again, we eat foods that are high in protein. Uh, These proteins are going to be broken down in the stomach, uh, absorbed from the small intestine into the blood as amino acids. These amino acids circulate around the body. They're taken up by different tissues, we need to think of protein differently because we don't really store protein just for fuel like we do carbohydrates and we do fats. Typically what happens is these amino acids, once they are in a tissue like muscle or liver or something, they are typically then uh, repackaged into some sort of you know functional protein. We, we can make muscle protein out of it. We can make enzymes out of it. We can make structural elements out of it. So we don't tend to store amino acids like just solely for energy like we do um, carbohydrates and, and fats. Okay? We, tend to, we tend to make some kind of useful functional protein out of these amino acids. However, there are some amino acids and some proteins in the body that can be broken down fairly easily once we've made them we can break them down fairly easily back down to their amino acids and as we saw, we can metabolize those aerobically. Okay? Now, um, let, let me just jump to and you all may not have gotten this because I just loaded it up this morning but it is up on Ulearn. Um, have people, have you all seen the, met- the protein one? Yeah. This one? All right. So don't 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 stress if you don't have this. Just take a look at it, and uh, it, it's up on U Learn now. I just want to hit some of the, the high points with protein metabolism. We got about ten or fifteen minutes left. Okay. First thing with protein we know is that uh, it's not just restricted to animal products, but you can uh, the that uh, protein can be taken in in a lot of different. Food sources, both uh, animal uh, from animal sources and from plants. Um, This we just went through. We eat the protein, digested and absorbed as amino acids. And um, okay, well, let me. uh, We've got these different amino acids, but they all have this same basic structure. Okay, there's this this uh, carbon backbone group that's called this carboxyl group the the don't worry too much about that the main one that we need to be concerned about over here is this uh, nitrogen or this NH2 what's referred to as the amino group okay and then the way that these amino acids differ is these side chains are all different okay so the the real difference in the chemical structure comes in, in these different amino acids comes down here um and let me, just, let me go back up here. The, the real difficulty with protein metabolism is that you can't send this structure through aerobic metabolism with this amino group on it. Okay. So one of the things, even though we've got lots of protein in the body, it's not a very efficient fuel because we have to take this group off and we have to do something with it. There are are two things that we typically do with this amino group. One is called deamination. We just take the amino group off and we excrete it. We get rid of it. And we get rid of it in the urine as urea. Okay? The other thing that we can do with this amino group is called transamination. But that means taking that amino group and transferring it to some other chemical compound. Okay? So this step in itself makes amino acid metabolism less desirable, okay? Because we got it, we have to deal with this amino group. It's not a very efficient fuel. And for that reason, the body chooses not to make protein metabolism a priority. So if we're looking at carbohydrate, fat, and protein, by far protein is the least metabolized nutrient doesn't mean we can't do it. It means we just prefer not to. Here's a little better scheme um, uh, of this. Uh, well, yeah. It gives you an idea of what we call nitrogen turnover. So that's that amino group, this nitrogen. Um, we've got this amino acid pool, if you will, in the body where different tissues can take up these amino acids like muscle and do something with them or we excrete it the majority of it goes out in our urine as urea, some of it goes out in sweat, and some of it goes out in our uh, feces. Okay, here's the one I wanted. Okay, you've got these amino acids in the blood. So as this blood is flowing through these tissues, these amino acids can be taken up into tissues like muscle. And it's referred to as the amino acid pool. But that pool doesn't just sit there. Relatively quickly, if the body is in a tissue-building state, or what we call an anabolic state, an anabolic state, we will take these amino acids and we will synthesize some kind of useful protein from them. Um, If the body, and, and a good example of an anabolic state is when you're sitting at rest after you've eaten. Okay. You've gotten the nutrients, the body's uh, uh, hormones, are like insulin, are in a state that is conducive to tissue building, and um, we will tend to take these amino acids and synthesize proteins. When you're in what's referred to as a catabolic state, that refers to tissue breakdown, we can break down some of these proteins back to their amino acids, and we can metabolize aerobically or oxidize them Okay, so it can happen we just prefer not to All right, we've already gone through this over here as two examples of amino acids alanine and, and isoleucine of how they can be converted to other chemicals that can be metabolized aerobically now here's the one I was talking to you about earlier This is really just for demonstration purposes. Here's pyruvate up here. Here's acetyl-CoA. Here's our Krebs cycle. All of these are different amino acids. And these are different places these amino acids can all plug into oxidative phosphorylation. Okay, So we can aerobically metabolize all of these different amino acids, but it's just not what the body prefers to do. okay let to skip over that one and talk about positive and negative nitrogen balance um if if an individual consumes an adequate amount of protein and an adequate amount of total calories and in particular if there is the stimulus for uh, tissue synthesis the individual will be in what's called positive nitrogen balance. Okay? That is, you are consuming and retaining more nitrogen than you're excreting. All right? and so This is an example of someone who is in a uh, positive nitrogen balance, tissue building, and in this case this might be an example of someone who is training and adding muscle mass. Okay? In order to add muscle mass you have to be in positive nitrogen balance. You've got to be consuming an adequate amount of nitrogen uh, through the, the protein that you eat and the stimulus of the exercise or the activity stimulates the synthesis of new tissue. Okay. Now, you can also be in negative nitrogen balance and long-term starvation is an example of negative nitrogen balance. Okay? This is a concentration camp survivor that you can see the results of long-term inadequate total energy intake and long-term inadequate protein intake. So, so what happens is, if the body's not getting an adequate amount of carbohydrate and fat then we will start to default, you know, if we're not getting an adequate amount of total energy intake, the body, in trying to keep itself alive by producing enough energy, will start to oxidize amino acids. And one of your your main sources of protein and amino acid in the body is muscle tissue. Okay? And so this is an example where somebody who has had inadequate um, energy intake and also inadequate protein intake for long periods of time, and you get a tremendous amount of muscle tissue loss because the body is metabolizing protein to make up for the fact that it's not getting adequate carbohydrate and fat. Okay, So lots of loss of muscle mass. Like the muscle is just gone? First. Yes. You are, you are literally um, the amino acids that are synthesized into proteins, the actin and the myosins, and the contract the, the uh, other regulatory proteins, essentially what is happening is the body is in a long-term, just just eliminate this side over here. Here's muscle protein. What's happening over long periods of time is this person is constantly in a catabolic state because they're not getting an adequate amount of amino acids from food. And so you literally will You take muscle, you break it down to amino acids, and you will use those amino acids and metabolize them aerobically to produce enough ATP to stay alive. Okay? Because they're not getting enough food intake, not not enough energy intake, and therefore not enough carbohydrate, fat, or protein intake. And what will happen with a person in this kind of uh, situation is you literally will see what's called negative nitrogen balance. Their body, because they're metabolizing the amino acids, their body is excreting more nitrogen than they're taking in. Okay, So they're in negative nitrogen balance. Okay, well how much protein should we be getting? Um, the protein recommendations for adults... All right. and we, we let me make this comment right now. We tend to look at our diet as a percentage of calories. Okay, what percentage of your total uh, diet is supposed to be from carbohydrates? So, 60. About sixty percent. How much is supposed to be from fat? 15, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18. Yeah, preferably less than thirty percent. Okay, the most health organizations recommend less than thirty percent. And and so then, what about protein? What does that leave? 10 to 20% protein. Well, the problem is if you're not consuming enough calories, you can say 15% of your diet's supposed to be protein, but if you're not consuming enough calories, you're not getting enough protein. Okay? So, conversely, if you're consuming twice as much in, in terms of total calories and 15% of that is protein, you're probably getting twice as much that, that you need. So, Here's what's recommended: is you don't base it on percentage; you base it on how much protein they should be getting per amount of body weight. Okay, and the recommendation for just adults, the adult recommendation, is about 0.8 grams of protein for every kilogram of body weight. Okay, 0.8 grams of protein for about um, Every kilogram of body weight. So if you're looking at somebody who weighs 80 kilograms, you're talking about 64 grams of protein a day, which is actually less than you think. Uh, if people become more active, okay, if you exercise or are more physically active, that protein intake uh, requirement goes up a little bit, goes from about 0.8 to 1. Uh, endurance athletes and uh, strength athlete, well basically the more athletic um, exercise training you do the greater your protein intake. And so for endurance athletes and ultra endurance athletes that could be anywhere from 1.2 grams of protein for every kilogram of body weight up to even two grams per kilogram. Strength athletes, and it's actually ironic because strength athletes may not need as much on a proportional basis as some ultra endurance athletes, but, about, but it is higher than what's recommended for the average adult. In fact, it's about double, okay? If these athletes are training at high intensity, they're expending a lot more energy and they need to consume enough protein to be in positive nitrogen balance, okay? So, you can figure it out for yourself based on what your level of activity is. Okay, Based on what your level of activity is, figure out your weight in kilograms and multiply by the appropriate amount. Okay, And then you can see how many grams of protein a day if you're meeting that recommendation. Now, I will say this in, in terms of our typical American diet. Uh, the foods that are very plentiful Very inexpensive and that are available to us, and that we eat a lot, contain a lot of protein. Okay, so uh, if there is any nutrient besides fat (laughs) that Americans are not likely—well, actually, all three nutrients uh, really—that we're not likely to be deficient in, it's protein. Okay, Um, that's for the average American. Uh, There, there can be folks that um, get very uh, carbohydrate centric you know if they're endurance athletes uh, or uh, vegetarians if they're not not that you can't get plenty adequate protein intake through uh, solely plant sources but you just have to be a little more careful to make sure that you get complementary proteins and, and that you get the, all of the essential amino acids okay so I, I would venture to say most Americans do not have a problem with getting an adequate amount of protein and so, therefore, we typically don't need all of these different types of uh, protein supplements that are are marketed to, to folks. So, uh, okay. So, so that, that protein PowerPoint is up on U Learn, so you can pull that down and take a look at it, and we'll continue our discussion with fats and uh, uh, carbohydrates.